We're going to open up to Mark chapter 7 tonight. Mark chapter 7. I haven't counted how many more times I get to preach for you as your pastor. I think it's nine counting tonight. No, it's eight counting tonight. I'm not going to waste them. Mark 7, 37 is where we'll be. I am going to read all beginning at verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, and these words are our text tonight, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Thus far the reading of God's own word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the opportunity we have to freely gather and listen to your word. Lord, there is nothing better in the entire world that any one of us could do, then listen to your word. Forgive us all for going about our lives as if there is. And help us to recognize, Lord, truly the gravity of this moment and all of these moments when we, when we listen to your word, when we hear you speaking to us through your word. Lord, help me to correctly handle your word of truth. Whatever is from you, may it be Applied to our hearts, whatever is not of you and is of me, may it be quickly forgotten. For Jesus' sake, amen. Dear congregation, I've always appreciated people who do things well. One example, a readily available example of someone who does things well is Henry Deemer removing a stump from his front yard. Certainly you've seen this as you've rode by the last few weeks. Uh, you know, I would probably call someone to grind the stump down and, you know, cover it with dirt, but as Henry told me, that doesn't really take care of the problem. And so we go to Henry's to use his zip line a few weeks back, and uh, all of the sod... Uh, is removed from around this stump in his front yard, very, very nicely removed to the point that it was sitting in his driveway where he would water it so that the grass kept growing. And how big of a radius did you have there, Henry? Or, were you like four feet around uh, outside the stump, all the way around it, right? So he had removed the sod and he had dug down a couple feet and he had dug underneath all of the roots and, you know, he had his chainsaw out there and whatever else you had and 
I don't know how long that took you, Henry, but I rode by for a few weeks and you were working on that stump. And I rode by now and that stump is gone, right? You can't even tell that that stump was ever there. So when it comes to removing a stump, uh, Henry uh, does that well, okay? And it's hard not to appreciate that. If you ride by and you, if I would show you where there used to be a stump, you might be able to see that there's not grass there at this time. But a time is coming very soon when you will have no idea that there was ever a stump in the middle of his yard, okay? Truly, uh, 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 we appreciate people who do things well. Uh, uh, of course, the greatest, I think, truth of our faith, or one of the greatest, I guess it's hard to pick one, there are a number of them, but one of the greatest truths of our faith Uh, And one thing that ought to afford us as believers a whole lot of comfort in this life, no matter the circumstances, is that the Bible tells us that our Savior does all things well. We see that here in Mark chapter 7, verse 37, where the crowd of people, um, astonished beyond measure after seeing Jesus heal a deaf man says, he has done all things well. That's the crowd's profession. As they look at Jesus' life, as they see him heal a deaf man, he has done all things well. Now, this statement that the crowd makes refers to all that they've seen from Jesus' life. The text makes clear that his, his making the deaf man hear Uh, here is just sort of icing on the cake, right? That's clear in the word even. The crowd says he even makes the deaf hear. Uh, This is is icing on the cake. Um, So, this this statement speaks towards all that they've seen Jesus do since he's been among them. We might say that that this statement uh, also uh, describes the entire testimony of the book of Mark up to this point. Right? Thus far in Mark's gospel, if you would begin reading at verse 1, uh, you, you, you'd read about Jesus teaching with great authority in the synagogue and the crowds being amazed at the way in which Jesus teaches. And we read stories about Jesus healing the sick, which He does here, but He does in other places. We read stories of Jesus raising the dead. Think for a moment of Jairus' daughter. We read about Jesus calling the disciples. We read about Jesus commanding the creation, right? Truly, Mark has set before us in his gospel uh, one who does all things well in Jesus. But the testimony here in Mark 7, 37 of the crowds, it, it even transcends Mark's gospel. Truth be told, this testimony, this confession of faith that the people make, that He has done all things well. This is, this is, this is the testimony of, of the Bible, right? The Bible tells us of, of a God who does all things well. We see it in creation, where we're told that God saw all that He had made, and it was very good, That's the testimony of Scripture, that in creation, He does all things well. You see a bird flying overhead. A faithful response would be, He has done all things well. 
We see the stars in the sky. Faithful response would be, He has done all things well. The rivers, the lakes, the mountains, the trees. What can we say about those things? But He has done all things well. In creating human life, the Bible says that God has done all things well. That's why we rejoice with the overturning of Roe v. Wade in our land, because uh, we know as Christians that abortion is no one's fundamental and basic right, right? None of us has the fundamental and basic right, or any right for that matter, to destroy God's good creation. None of us has the right to terminate and to end that which God has made and made well. It's also why we, we roll our eyes at some of the environmental extremism that is out there today. If any of you listens to the briefing with Al Mohler, you might have heard this. Um, it was on Friday's episode, and it was, it was the end of his season this past Friday. He runs a season August through June, and, um, uh, and so at the end of the season, uh, he always has some sort of um, story uh, that uh, he has a funny name for. It. It's meant to be funny. It's kind of how he leaves, but, but this was the story. It's a new story that came out of New Zealand uh, this past week. Uh, the New Zealand government this past week, uh, and you farmers will appreciate this, they voted to tax farmers for cow and sheep burps. Right? Seriously, that's, that's a real story. You can look it up online. They are going to tax farmers because of the gas that their livestock passes. Why, you ask? Would they do that? Well, because according to environmentalists, the gas that cows and sheep pass are a big reason we're experiencing global warming today. The gas and, uh, that cows and sheep pass are, are carbon emissions and therefore should be taxed as such. That's a real story. As Christians, looking at the world through a biblical worldview, we would say that's completely, absolutely ridiculous. Right? And we recognize even more that this, this actually, this, this can't be, right? That, that, no, this doesn't work because cows and sheep are created by God. I think we would agree that passing gas, as funny as it is, is a natural part of cows and sheep's existence. And therefore, to say that it's a problem and that it needs to be taxed is to say what ultimately? It's to say that what God made is not good. It doesn't work right. It's harmful. It's wrong. That's the ultimate message being sent there. And as Christians, we would say, uh, no, <laughs> right? No. As Mark 7.37 says, he has done all things well. That truth applies to creation. Believe it or not, it even applies to burping cows and sheep. It also applies to, to redemption, Consider what Jesus said after having endured the full wrath of God and paying for the sins of His people. What did He say on the cross? He said, it is finished. That means the work of redemption is complete. There are no loose ends to tie up. There is nothing left for any of us to do. It is finished. 
And so when it comes to redemption, when it, when it comes to Christ securing our salvation through His death on the cross, what can we say? He has done all things well. Let me ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Or do you, do you go on looking for salvation in yourself and in the work of your hands and in your spiritual performance as if Jesus didn't do a good enough job? Or do you maybe hang on to your sins as if, you know, there's no way God could forgive you for this terrible, horrible, evil thing that you've done? Do you hang on to your sins as if, as if Jesus didn't do a good enough job on the cross to pay for them fully? Do you continue to wallow in despair, not believing that God has forgiven you? My friend, He's done all things well. That applies to what we read in Mark 7 when He heals the deaf man. That applies to God's work in creation. That applies to God's work in redemption. He has done all things well. It is finished. The work is complete. The job is done. That's good news. Good news. So he's done all things well. That's true, true in creation. That's true in redemption. It's also true in providence. In providence, too, we can say he has done all things well. This is the resounding testimony of Scripture. Uh, give you a few examples. Life of Jacob, specifically in well, the whole life of Jacob, but chapters 29 and 30 came to my mind. I mean, ch- chapters 29 and 30 of, of the book of Genesis read like one big long soap opera, really. Um, here you read about how Jacob marries Leah and Rachel. And if you're familiar with the story, you know it's a complete mess. Jacob loved Rachel. Jacob wanted to marry Rachel. Jacob agreed uh, with, to work seven years for Rachel. Uh, so he, he works seven years. The day of the wedding comes, and Rachel's father uh, sends his older daughter Leah into the tent to consummate the marriage. Uh, Jacob wakes up. As the text says, behold, it's Leah. It's like one of the best lines in the Bible. Um, and Jacob is mad. There's nothing he can do. So he works another seven years for Rachel, and eventually Rachel does then become his wife. Now, after this, um, we get into the children that are born. If you thought that was a mess, the stories of the children are even more of a mess. Leah has child after child after child. Uh, Rachel is unable to have children. Rachel gets jealous. Rachel has an idea. She gives to Jacob her servant Bilhah to be Jacob's wife. Jacob has a child with her. Leah gets jealous because, I guess, apparently at this point in the story, she's not able to have children or they're not happening as fast as she wants. And so, she gives Jacob, her servant, Zilpah as his wife, and Jacob then has a child with Zilpah. Well, apparently after this, Leah can have children again uh, because after this strange episode with mandrakes, she lies with Jacob, has four more children, we're told, two sons and two daughters. And then sometime after all of that madness, Rachel, who wasn't able to have children, uh, has a son. She names him Joseph, and then she has Benjamin as well. But, you know, you read that story, and you're like, what a disaster, right? What a mess. What does that story 
have to do with anything. And yet, who are those children? Born in that madness, right? Well, they're the children that become the nation of Israel. And who comes from those children? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ comes from those children. So that story, it's full of pride and jealousy and sin, and yet God sovereignly works through it all to accomplish His redemptive purposes. In providence, He's done all things well. We see this in the life of Joseph, too, right? Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers, and his time in slavery is filled with great highs and great lows, but in the end, Joseph becomes uh, one of the most powerful men in all of Egypt. In fact, the most powerful man in all of Egypt other than Pharaoh. And in that position, Joseph is blessed by God to have the foresight to store up food because a famine is coming. The famine comes, and yet there's food for all the people of the land because of Joseph. Of course, Joseph's brothers who sold him into slavery, they come looking for food, and eventually they realize that this man who has been sort of giving them the runaround and whom they are dependent on for food is their brother Joseph, and they become terrified, especially after their father dies. Right? They become terrified. They think Joseph will, you know, do away with them or punish them for what they did. But what does Joseph say to them? At the end of Genesis, he says to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God used for good to save many lives. Again, it's a story of God's providence, and it's a story that shows us that in providence, God does all things well. One more illustration. We see this in the life of Ruth. Um, The book of Ruth begins by telling us about an Israelite woman named Naomi, whose husband and two married sons both die while she was living in a foreign land. She decides after they all die that she's going to return home to Israel. Uh, Her daughter-in-laws are in tow about halfway home. She says, you know what, daughter-in-laws, it's ridiculous that you would follow me uh, to my homeland. Why don't you go back to Moab and find husbands for yourselves and have children? Uh, One of those daughter-in-laws, Orpah, she goes home. The other daughter-in-law does not, Ruth. And Ruth pledges herself to Naomi and says, you know, where you go, I'll go, and your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Uh, It all seems, in the context of redemption, like a rather strange and irrelevant story. And yet that first chapter of Ruth ends by telling us, that they arrived in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. And that last little detail there is important. Uh, As the barley harvest was beginning, if we zoom out for a moment, we'll see that it's because the barley harvest was beginning that Ruth is able to go out into the fields and glean. And it's in the fields while she's gleaning for food that she meets Boaz. And it's, it's after she meets Boaz that she marries Boaz, and it's after she marries Boaz that she has a child with Boaz, and it's only after she has a child with Boaz that she has a great-grandchild named David. And of course, from David would come the Christ. And so we, we look at the story of Ruth, 
And, and as we get lost in the details of that first chapter, it's like, what does this have to do with anything? But then when we zoom out, we see that when it comes to God's providence, truly, He has done all things well. Of course, this truth applies to our own lives also. The words of Mark 7.37 are words that we can hang our hats on as believers in Jesus. These are words we can put on our wall, which I've done thanks to Shelly, which made me a picture that has these words, which are on our wall in our bedroom, right? He has done all things well. We know, the believer knows that these words will be our words. This testimony will be our testimony. How do we know that? Romans 8, 28 tells us that, right? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. What does that verse promise us? Well, it promises us that those who trust in God will, when the dust settles be able to say, He has done all things well. And so a loved one passes away, and it's painful. We have questions. We're incapable of seeing any good or benefit that could possibly come out of it. And yet we can, and we should, rest and find comfort in the truth that our Savior our sovereign Savior, does all things well. A longing remains unfulfilled. Maybe we long to be married. Maybe we long to have a child. Maybe we long to see a loved one come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus. We have questions. We struggle to see and understand and know what God is doing. In fact, we don't know what God is doing. And yet we can rest and find comfort in the truth even then, that our Savior does all things well. Maybe your pastor and family are moving away. Don't understand why. Maybe he doesn't even understand why. There's sorrow and there's sadness and grief. And yet we know that he who is sovereign over the church does all things well. J.C. Ryle says, we shall never see the full beauty of these words until the resurrection morning. We shall then look back over our lives and know the meaning of everything that happened from first to last. We shall remember all the way by which we were led and confess that all was done well. The why and the wherefore, the causes and the reasons of everything which now perplexes, will be clear and plain as the noonday sun. We shall wonder at our own past blindness and marvel that we could have ever doubted the Lord's love. He has done all things well. That was the people's response in Mark 7, 37. That will be your response and my response too when Christ returns or calls us home. And even now, we can hang our hat on that, that our Savior is doing all things well. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we praise you for doing all things well, for never making a mistake, for never having to say, whoops, that didn't go as planned. That never happens with you, and we're grateful. Help us to hang our hats on this truth ever and always that He has done all things well. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand for the parting blessing, and then we'll sing our closing song together. Brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn His face toward you and grant you His peace. Amen. What number is it, Mary? 60? 460? Okay, 460. 460, all the way my Savior leads me. 460, and we'll sing verses... Is that all the verses, one through three? We'll sing all the verses, 460.